so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve here as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the weekly tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the public square. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Christopher Kayser to talk about the ethics of abortion and human personhood in light of his new book, The Ethics of Abortion, Women's Rights, Human Life, and the Questions of Justice from Rutledge. Dr. Kayser serves as a professor of philosophy at Loyola Marymount University. He graduated from the Honors Program at Boston College and earned a PhD from the University of Notre Dame. A Fulbright Scholar, Dr. Kayser did postdoctoral work at the University of Cologne, and he was appointed as a corresponding member of the Pontifical Academy of Life at Vatican City. He also serves as a fellow for the Word of Life Institute and as the William E. Simon Visiting Fellow at the James Madison Program at Princeton University. He's also a winner of the Templeton Grant and has written over 100 scholarly articles and book chapters and over 16 books on a host of issues, including bioethics, human dignity, and abortion. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Kayser, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. As we get started, I want to hear a little bit about your story. I know talking about abortion for many of us can be not only a divisive issue in terms of cultural issues, but also it can be a deeply personal issue to many of us. I know many friends who have had an abortion in their past or in their stories. Many of those in our churches have also dealt with these issues. Uh, this isn't isolated to a specific group in our society. It's actually a plague upon all of our society. Uh, and all of our cultures. And so I wanted to see if you could talk to us a little bit about not only your story and your family history with abortion um, and these uh, related issues, but also why, what kind of prompted you to write a book like this? Yeah, I think you're right, Jason. Uh, abortion touches almost all people, uh, either directly or indirectly. Um, I too have many friends, dear friends, who have either paid for uh, their girlfriends to get abortions or themselves have gotten abortions. And so I, I understand, you know, very much, you know, where they're coming from. And my own family history has been, you know, caught up with this issue in a very distinct and unique kind of way. So I was brought into existence in the summer of 1968. And if you know anything about American history, that was a very controversial time in our country. We had the assassinations of King and Robert Kennedy. It was really a very uh, riots, very tumultuous time. 
And uh, my parents met each other and they were, uh, my father is from South Africa, a person of color, and my mom, Irish American. And they had this kind of whirlwind uh, romance and, and I came into existence. And uh, my birth mother wasn't ready to get married at that time to my birth father. And so she chose to go up to Seattle to a mother's home and give birth there and then place me for adoption. And so I am very much aware of the challenges of a crisis pregnancy because I am myself the result of one. And I've talked to my birth mother before at length about how challenging and difficult it was for her. And all I can say is that I am incredibly grateful to her and incredibly grateful to all those women who show the unbelievable courage that it takes to move forward with a pregnancy in very, very challenging and difficult circumstances. It has been a huge blessing for me to be alive and a blessing, obviously, for my kids who wouldn't be here if, if I hadn't lived and now for my first grandchild that's due in January. So the ramifications of people's decisions in these matters are really difficult to foresee. And it can be easy to think that this is a, a solution that will just take care of everything, in part because we don't see what the alternative to that uh, choice would be. My life interacted with the issue of abortion in another way, though, as well. When I was a senior in college, uh, I got my girlfriend pregnant. And at that time, I had no job, uh, didn't yet have my college degree. I was thinking about going on to graduate school. And this was an enormous crisis for me. I really wasn't ready for the uh, rigors of uh, parenthood. And I, I felt like this was destroying my life. And so I went on a long run. It was in Boston where all this happened. And I remember screaming at the sky and thinking, this is ruining my life. My life's basically over now. And, you know, I slowly moved into my second reaction, which was to uh, basically pout and to feel sorry for myself and to say, oh my gosh, here I am, the only guy I know in college who's married. And I, you know, trying to get into graduate school and how am I going to afford all this? And I really stayed in that kind of mode of pouting uh, all the way through uh, until uh, my wife was in labor. And when she was in labor, they had a fetal heart monitor connected up and the baby's heart rate kind of plummeted at one point. And so all these surgeons rushed into the operating room and they got ready to do this emergency C-section. And the doctor literally had the knife out and ready to, to cut open Jennifer. And suddenly the baby's heart rate came back. And it was really only at that point that I recognized how devastated I would be to lose uh, this unborn child, to lose potentially even Jennifer, my wife. And then shortly after that, my daughter Elizabeth was born. And it was literally, it is till this day, the happiest day of my whole life. So I guess I want to say that I really do understand feeling a crisis pregnancy, feeling like this is 150% the wrong time, that I'm not ready for this, that I just can't take this. I understand how that feels. I really do. And yet, I also understand that no child is a vampire. That's sort of how I thought of this child. It's like, it's going to suck the life out of me. It's going to ruin my life. I'm not going to be able to go to graduate school. I'll never be a professor. My whole life is ruined. And frankly, feeling like I couldn't do it. You know, I, I had no money. I had no job. I had nothing. And yet, all those feelings gave way to the reality that if you're a normal person, you love your son or daughter, whether they're planned or unplanned, more than anything. I mean, you literally, 
after they're born would rather die yourself than have any harm come to them. And so I guess I want to encourage people when they find themselves in a crisis, encourage them to remember that they really have an opportunity, even though it seems like it's the end of the world and it seems like this child's going to ruin everything. In fact, a child is going to be an enormous blessing to you. And almost all parents, I mean, literally 99.999% say that their son or daughter, whether their son or daughter is planned or not planned, is the one that they love so much that they literally don't have words to express it. And this is true, black and white, rich or poor, uh, atheist, person of faith. Uh, this is, I'd say, the, almost the most deeply rooted love there is, the love of a parent for a child. And so I think even though it is a crisis, I totally understand that. I think we should also remember that it's an enormous opportunity to find deeper love. And I think personally, at the end of the day, that really is what life is all about. Yeah. Well, obviously, this is the third edition. So you just had the third edition come out just a couple months ago, um, and it's it's a real treat. And a lot of that is because you uh, you approach a lot of these questions not only with that heart of compassion and understanding, um, but you do it from a deeply philosophical perspective, which is refreshing even as a person of faith, even though you're not addressing these from a theological perspective, which is very important to these debates, especially as people of faith. But I like the way that you go about talking in philosophical terms, kind of engaging apples to apples when we're engaging conversations uh, with many in our society. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about what prompted you to originally write this book now that it's in its third edition. And then what are some of the distinctive features or changes that you made in a third edition? Obviously, with the infamous Dobbs decision that came out earlier this year, that kind of radically altered the abortion debate. How did that kind of change a third edition of this book? Yeah, so I originally wrote this book because I did think there was a need for a kind of comprehensive pro-life case. And so what I've done is address every single argument in favor of the permissibility of abortion, of which I was aware. And so I tried to be very thorough, and I spent uh, years, literally, reading philosophical journals and reading books and examining as many of these arguments as I can. And so I can't say that the book you know, has every, literally every single argument ever given, but I tried my best to make it very comprehensive and very complete. And I think that you're right, that my ambition here is to have a reasoned-based, evidenced-based case against the choice of abortion. So this is not, in this book, appealing to faith or to revelation or to anything that requires a distinctive religious commitment. So I think that people of goodwill, whether they're people of faith or whether they're not, can understand certain basic moral truths. So for instance, I think that you don't need to be a person of faith to understand that stealing is wrong. Now, is this part of uh, you know, Jewish and Christian belief? Well, yes, of course, it's one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal. But I don't think it's distinctive or uniquely Jewish or Christian to understand the reality that stealing is wrong. And I think the ethics of abortion is similar. I think what we need in order to make a case against abortion is a premise that it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. And I think this is a premise that all people of goodwill can, in principle, understand and accept, again, whether or not the person has faith. And in fact, one of the most powerful arguments ever given against abortion, which I talk about in my book, is an argument given by an atheist 
uh, he actually just passed away a, a few months ago. His name was Don Marcus, and he was a professor of philosophy and an atheist. And he made an argument that went like this. Why is it wrong for someone to kill you or me? Well, if someone were to burst into my room right now and kill me or burst into your room and kill you, it wouldn't do anything to your past, right? You still would have would have experienced yesterday and last week and last year, etc. But if you get killed today, what you would lo- lose is your chance for a valuable future. So if you get killed today, you will not make new friends next week. You won't read a, a great book. Uh, you know, next week, you're not going to be able to go to the movies. You're not going to be able to eat a nice dinner. The chance you had for all these goods will be taken away if you get killed today. And the same thing's true with me. I will lose out on my opportunity to pursue knowledge, love, connections with people, experiences of beauty, etc. Now, the same thing, though, is true of killing a newborn baby. If you kill a newborn baby, you take away his or her chance for a valuable future right? She won't be able to go to school. She won't be able to make new friends. She won't be able to learn things, get married, have kids, all the things that she had the chance to do. All those things are taken away. So she's deprived of that. But the very same reason also applies to human beings prior to birth. If someone gets an abortion, that deprives the individual who's aborted of his or her chance for a valuable future. And so the very same reason that is wrong to kill you or me is also a reason to think that infanticide is wrong and also a reason to think that abortion is wrong. So you know, this is not a faith-based argument. It's not saying, you know, in the Bible it says in this chapter, um, sometimes that's going to be useful if you're talking to a person who already does believe in the Bible. But Don Marcus's argument is reason-based, and it's an argument, I think, that any person of goodwill, whether they have faith or not, can in principle accept. Yeah. What were some of the changes that you wanted to make in a third edition? Like what necessitated an update to a volume like this? Well, what I try to do is be comprehensive. So because there's always new articles written about the ethics of abortion and infanticide, I you know kept up on those articles and read them and included those in my response. So the abortion debate has a lot of back and forth. And so sometimes you'll have someone responding to you know something I've said or something someone someone else has said trying to critique the pro-life view. And so in this book, what I do is provide some responses to those things. Yeah, I know early on, one of the things you do in the book is you talk about the loaded language uh, that often surrounds this debate, whether it's pro-choice or pro-abortion or uh, anti-choice or being pro-life. And a lot of these kind of the language often really matters. So I wanted to see if you could unpack a little bit of that. What are some of the loaded language uh, surrounding this debate, especially when we talk about speaking of the life of the pre-born or the unborn or the baby in the womb? Why does that language matter, one? And then how do you define the term abortion? Because I think some people see abortion as an all-encompassing concept. Others see it as specifically kind of elective abortion or abortion on demand. Why is language important here and kind of defining our terms of the debate pretty early on? Yes, I, I think language is very important because sometimes we can use language to conceal and to mislead people. There is what is called euphemistic language. So, for instance, when you talk about the final solution, well, that's a euphemism, right, for intentionally killing innocent human beings in concentration camps. And so I think it's important to use accurate language. And what I try to do in the book is use language that any person of goodwill, whether they're pro-choice or pro-life, could in principle accept. So I tried not to use loaded terms. So, for instance, 
people that are in favor of the permissibility of abortion typically call themselves pro-choice. They don't say, I'm pro-abortion. I mean, a few do, but not too many. And then those who oppose abortion typically call themselves pro-life. So based on the principle that people should be able to name themselves and speak of themselves as they like, I've used the preferred, in general, use the preferred terms of each you know, of the respective groups in this discussion. Now, when we come to defining abortion, I think that euphemisms sometimes are used here. So sometimes people will speak of terminating a pregnancy. And I think that's not a very good way to define abortion because pregnancies are terminated by giving birth. Pregnancies are terminated by a spontaneous miscarriage. Uh, pregnancies are terminated if the pregnant woman dies early in the pregnancy. And pregnancies are terminated by abortion. So when you speak of termination of pregnancy, you're using this overly broad term that conceals the reality because you know miscarriage is not the same as abortion and that's not the same as live birth. And yet all these are termination of pregnancy. So what's the best way to understand abortion? I would say the best way to understand abortion, the proper way, is that abortion is intentionally killing a prenatal human being prior to birth. Now, why do I say that? Well, if you have no human being alive any longer, if you have, for instance, a stillbirth where the baby has already died, and then you do a procedure to remove the corpse of the baby and the placenta, etc., that's not properly speaking abortion right? The child in this case has already died. And so there is no properly speaking abortion there. Likewise, if you have a case of doing some procedure that is an unfortunate side effect, ends up killing the human being in utero, that also is not properly speaking abortion because it's not intentional killing. So the various parts of the definition, I think, are really important. It, to be abortion, it has to be intentionally killing, either as a means or as an end, and it has to be killing. Now, why do I say that? Because there is such a thing as a botched abortion, a case in which the abortionist tries but fails to kill the developing human being in utero, and there's a live birth. So in a case like that, I would say that there has not actually been an abortion. There's been an attempted abortion or a botched abortion, a failed abortion, but no real abortion because in this case, the targeted individual survived and now is alive after birth. So I think it's important to define our terms. And so that's why I think abortion is properly defined, not as termination of pregnancy, but as intentionally killing an innocent human being prior to birth. Yeah, that's one of the things that I think is really helpful. And one of the things we try to do here in this podcast is be really precise with the language we use and also engage people's arguments um, on the terms that they said and engaging them as they are uh, rather than manipulating or not presenting them accurate and correctly. And that's something I think you do a really good job throughout the volume is honestly engaging other people's ideas um, and providing a kind of a different take, a pro-life take on these things. Obviously, you do that from a philosophical perspective. One of the things that I recently wrote about, especially after the Dobbs decision, was how abortion is kind of the linchpin to kind of a larger kind of conversation about the sexual revolution, about uh, issues of modernity. There's a lot of questions like that where abortion represented a lot more than just abortion. 
And one of the things that I think you do really wisely in the book is kind of illustrated in a different way. As you talk about the nature, even in the subtitle itself, of women's rights, the pursuit of justice or the common good, and even some questions about the role of religion in the public square. So I wanted to see if you could help us to understand a little bit about how abortion isn't just an isolated issue, but it's actually kind of connected to a host of other issues and bigger questions about corresponding rights between the rights of the mother and the rights of the child. And how is abortion just representing a little bit more than just the procedure itself? I think you're absolutely right that abortion is connected to all kinds of other issues. And a person's answer about abortion can actually deeply influence their answer and their understanding of many other issues. So just to use one example, there are some defenders of abortion who will say things like, if a human being doesn't have cognitive abilities, well, then that human being is not really a quote-unquote person, and therefore abortion of that human being is fine. Well, that view has ramifications for human beings after birth. That is, human beings that are born that have severe cognitive impairments. There are definitely some human beings that are, you know, they might be 30 years old, who have severe cognitive impairments. They're very mentally handicapped, and they are unable to do the kind of linguistic functions and the intellectual functions of a cognitively normally developed human being. Now, if you're consistent, what you'd say is, well, those human beings also do not have a right to life. Or to use a different example, there are some people who say, well, abortion should be permissible until the point where the human being in utero can experience pain. And then you might debate about exactly when that is. Is it 15 weeks? Is it 20 weeks? Is it 25, et cetera? But if we accept that view, that view also has ramifications for our view of other matters. So for instance, there are some human beings who are born with chronic insensitivity to pain syndrome. And this basically means that they are actually unable to experience pain. It's a very rare condition, but for them, cutting off their finger would be like you getting a haircut. They don't, doesn't feel any pain at all. Now, my view would be that those human beings do have an equal right to live with any other human being that can experience pain. Another ramification is if it's really true that our legal status depends on our ability to experience pain, well then, why don't we extend the right to life to dogs and cats and worms who also can experience pain and suffering? And yet most people don't do that. So I think that oftentimes defenders of abortion are inconsistent. They hold views that in fact, if they held them consistently, would lead to other views that they reject and they find absurd. So just to use one more example, some defenders of abortion say, well, a human being prior to birth has no rights, but then a human being after the human being is born does have rights. So the idea is basically being outside the human body magically bestows human rights on the individual in question. Well, I think this is very hard to accept also. There are some fetal surgeries where the, the fetus is removed from the body of the woman and surgery is done and then the fetus is put back in. So are we to then reason that when in utero, the human being has no rights, when taken out, it gains rights in the surgery, and then it loses it again when going back in utero, and then if there's another surgery, it gains it again, and then it loses it again when it goes in utero, and then when it's born, it gains it again. That's crazy. That's, that's we can, that's, I can't believe that. So, and furthermore, why should getting born be relevant to having any rights? I mean, we don't, dogs are born, cats are born. We don't think they have rights. 
So just getting born seems completely irrelevant to our basic moral status. So I think sometimes that defenders of abortion are fundamentally inconsistent in their views. And so they try to pick out a particular, you know, random arbitrary characteristic like the ability to experience suffering or being outside the womb. Um, And yet these things, I think, really don't justify the view that an individual lacking these things does not have a right to live. Yeah. I know that's one of the interesting things to me in this debate is often it comes down to what does it mean to be human? How do we define what a human being is? And especially in terms of the abortion debate, it comes down to a question of the moral status of the baby. Um, And so that's one of the things you kind of referenced it earlier, um, but I wanted to highlight specifically the work of Peter Singer, which in some ways I appreciate because he is trying to be consistent and kind of logically work out his system, which actually takes, he uh, becomes a proponent or at least open to issues of infanticide even, because he says that the moment of birth isn't kind of some magical moment that all of a sudden you gain rights. And so often Singer and others will start to define a human being or he'll say, yes, the baby in the womb is a human being, but not a moral person. And a moral person that is gained with consciousness or awareness or rationality or autonomy or something like that, some kind of, in some ways, an arbitrary characteristic, which is interesting to me from a theological and ethical perspective, because often we do use those type of markers to determine what is a human being and then have to make some type of exception or some type of argument for those who don't have those characteristics, whether it's someone like my cousin who has severe mental impairment, um, who's a 50-year-old man now, 55 plus, doesn't have the same cognitive abilities that maybe you or I do, but he's still an image bearer in a theological language created in the very image of God and has that value, worth, and dignity. He is a human being. He's a moral person, philosophically speaking. So I wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about Peter Singer and his idea of infanticide, especially the label that he will, he'll say to those who say, well, he'll say they're a, a speciesist or we're being speciesist if we prefer and say a human being is an exception case, like a human being thus deserves all of these rights and these, uh, these duties simply because they're a human being. Can you expand a little bit about Peter Singer's argument and how we should think about that? Yes. Peter Singer's argument is based on his broader utilitarian view. And so his view is that individuals who can suffer, they count in the moral calculus. And so until a human being in utero can suffer, it just doesn't count. In addition to that, he has a view of what counts as a person. So basically, he has a Lockean view of the person, which indicates that you have to be able to be self-aware in different times and places and make plans, and then you count as a person. Now, I think there's many, many problems with Peter Singer's view. And I have actually talked to Peter Singer about problems I have with his view. And I'll just talk about a couple of the problems. One of them is this. His view simply cannot secure equal protection for disabled human beings. If you have a senile elderly human being with Alzheimer's, well, they don't count, quote unquote, as a person in Singer's view. If you have a newborn baby, none of them count as, quote unquote, persons in Singer's view. But I think if that's the conclusion of his view, then we have to go back and reject his understanding of what a person is. So it is the case, if you look at the history of thought, that many different times and places have divided the human family into two different groups and said, well, if you're like me, you count as a person. If you're white, 
you can as a person. Well, if you're black, you don't count. If you're European, you can as a person. If you're non-European, you don't count. If you're a man, you can as a person. If you're a woman, you don't count. But every single time we've divided the human family into this, these two groups, those that count as persons and have basic rights and basic dignity and those that don't, whenever we've done that, we've made a horrible mistake. So I am an advocate of the ethics of inclusion. I think we should include every single human being within the gamut of those who should be protected by law and welcomed in life, excluding no one. And part of the reason I think this is every single time we've ever excluded any group of human beings from basic protection, we've made a terrible mistake. And everyone now can recognize that as a terrible mistake. Now, what about animals? Well, my view is this, that we should respect animals. And there's something seriously wrong with, you know, someone who tortures a dog, you know, just for fun or something. And yet, I do think that we can recognize that there are significant differences between, say, dogs and human beings. And one way to think about this is that I would say that human beings have a rational nature. So what does that mean? That means that human beings have the interior principles that can give rise to rational thought and free action. Now, some human beings, even though they have a rational nature, are impeded from exercising that nature. So think of, say, the elderly woman with Alzheimer's. She has a rational nature, but because of her disease, she's impeded from exercising that. And in fact, we can diagnose her as having a disease precisely because she has that rational nature. We say, this is a human being. This is a rational animal. Oh, she can't function as a rational animal. There's something wrong. She's got a disease. She's got Alzheimer's. So in other words, the diagnosis of a mental handicap is presupposing the reality that different things have a different kind of nature. So when my dog doesn't speak, I don't take the dog to the vet and say, oh my gosh, there's something wrong here. The dog's not talking, right? Because the dog doesn't have a rational nature. So there's nothing arbitrary or unfair about treating things with a different nature in different ways. And therefore, we treat human beings whether they're very old and have Alzheimer's, whether they're very young, whether they're mentally handicapped or not, with a special respect that's due to a rational nature. On the other hand, a dog, a cat, a worm, a tree, none of those things have a rational nature. When they are not functioning rationally, they are doing what they're capable of doing in virtue of their nature. So I don't think that it's uh, unjust or unfair to treat human beings in a way that's fundamentally different then we treat dogs, cats, et cetera. You kind of mentioned it earlier when you talked about some of the policy and the law perspective on a lot of these issues. And this has been a big issue, obviously, since the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs versus Whole Woman's Health earlier this year. And then even kind of leading up to the midterm elections and through the midterm elections, we saw a number of ballot initiatives about abortion uh, from various states being pro and against abortion. Um, I wanted to see how you thought, especially given that this is the third edition of the book, you're writing this in light of this historic win at the Supreme Court in the Dobbs case. How does that shift or change any of the conversation or how does that alter maybe some of the issues or questions that we're going to be facing as we move forward into this new era? Well, in a certain way, it does shift things because we have now a new legal landscape in the United States where greater protection from the unborn can be pursued. And in fact, greater protection of the unborn is, in fact, a reality. And so I think in a way, what was merely theoretical before now becomes much more practical. And the practicality of it, I think, 
ought to be not merely a matter of law, but also a matter of culture. So I think that everyone who is pro-life ought to really make strenuous efforts to provide women in crisis pregnancies the help and support they need to move forward with a positive decision. And I think that's really an obligation that, that all of us have, all people of goodwill. Even if you're in favor of abortion, I don't think, or very few of those people in favor of abortion want women to only have one choice, simply to abort. And that's the only choice that's, that's practically possible for them. So I think people of, all, of goodwill, whether they're for or against abortion, hopefully can agree that we ought to try to support women with crisis pregnancies and really help them to move forward in a positive way. In terms of the arguments, though, I haven't read after the Dobbs decision came out new arguments in favor of abortion. So maybe there will be some forthcoming, but the, the arguments about abortion have been kicking around for about 50 years. Basically, before Roe versus Wade in 1973, there were already in philosophy a number of people defending abortion and also infanticide. And so the debate has really been going on for quite a long time. And I can't exclude the possibility that tomorrow there'll be a groundbreaking article that you know sheds new light on the issue. That certainly could happen. But I kind of doubt that just because a lot of people have been thinking about it for a long time. So I think the major ways of defending abortion have been put forward for quite a while. And now you have kind of versions of them, but I think the major ways of defending it have already been presented. Yeah, one of the things that's really interesting to me at the very end of the book, the last chapter of your book, is that you ask this kind of fascinating question about the use of artificial wombs. And I think for some listeners, they're like, that doesn't totally make sense in light of what we've been talking about. But that's the thing that I appreciate about your book is you're also kind of forward thinking. You're you're addressing questions that we may not or we may or may not have the capability to do, but at least how would this kind of shift the moral calculus and how we think about uh, these issues? So I wanted to see if you could unpack that a little bit for listeners who may not be familiar with the idea of artificial wombs and how that ties into the debate. So the idea would be something like this. Uh, technology is always advancing. And so at what age are children viable now? Well, around 22 weeks is about more or less when children become viable, able to live outside the womb. Now, 50 years ago, it was about 28 weeks, 29 weeks. Now, what if technology continues to progress and develop and the line of viability goes even earlier to 10 weeks to eight weeks? to four weeks. Why, why not all the way back to conception? Well, in fact, that is what scientists are working on. They are working now on artificial wombs. Now, if those that technology comes into existence, what will happen is that there could be another option other than abortion as intentional killing for a woman to end her pregnancy early. And that would be removal of the developing human being from her womb and putting it into an artificial womb. Now, would this be morally permissible? Well, in this book, I argue that it would be, that it would be, in fact, a way for both sides, pro-choice and pro-life, to have what they want. So what do pro-life people want? Well, they want human beings that are developing to be respected and not to be killed. And so if a human being is removed from a, a natural womb and put into an artificial womb, well, that human being would be adopted early and have a chance to hopefully have a good life. On the other hand, the pro-choice side also, at least many of them, would be satisfied. Why? They want to affirm women's autonomy. They want to make it so women aren't burdened with pregnancy. And so if 
the developing human being was removed from the woman's body and put into an artificial womb, that would enable the woman to move on with her life. And it may be a lot easier to place a child for adoption if uh, the child is put in the artificial womb much earlier. Because over the course of nine months, I think it's probably natural that a kind of bond develops between mother and child, making it more difficult to place a child in a family via adoption after nine months. So this could be a, a very positive thing. And given that now, at least in the United States, um, there are about 2 million couples that are looking to adopt babies, this could be an enormous benefit for them. So anyway, it's just an idea. And I do think the technology is in development. And at some point, I imagine, it will be developed. And so at that point, perhaps we can move beyond abortion is killing and give women another choice to give life much, much earlier and only be pregnant for a short while and then also give the child a chance for a valuable future. This has obviously been such a fascinating conversation. There's so much ground to cover, and we barely even scratched the surface of all of the issues you address and raise um, in the book. And I highly recommend folks to go and grab a copy of this, The Ethics of Abortion. It's now in its third edition, just came out earlier this year with Rutledge. Uh, we'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. But one of the things we always do at the very end of the podcast is talk about some recommended resources, kind of in light of the conversation. So I wanted to see, Dr. Kayser, if you could recommend some books for those who may want to go a little bit deeper. Obviously, they can pick up your books. You have a number of books that are very, very helpful on this, especially this book, The Ethics of Abortion. But what are some other resources or even primary sources uh, that are pro and against that would be wise for us as uh, specifically as Christians who want to dive into some of these questions and to think deeply, especially philosophically about them? Uh, what kind of resources would you recommend for listeners? Well, one resource would be a book I co-authored called Abortion Rights for and Against. This is with Cambridge University Press, and it is coming out actually on Audible, and so people could listen to the book. And that is a book in which I and my interlocutor, Kate Greasley, uh, discuss the ethics of abortion. We basically divided it up equally, where I made a case and she made a case, and then we critiqued each other's view, and then we critiqued the critiques. So it's really a back and forth uh, and trying to answer each other's arguments, and that might be uh, a helpful resource for people. I think in a way the most helpful resource, though, is something that was written by Randy Alcorn, and the book is called Pro-Life Answers to Pro-Choice Arguments. This is an expanded and updated edition, and I think it is really a fantastic book. I think that it goes through almost all the most common uh, reasons given uh, for abortion and really does a very nice job answering these objections. So I would highly recommend that book also. And for listeners' sake, we'll make sure to link to all of those resources, including Dr. Kayser's new book, The Ethics of Abortion, in the show notes. Uh, but Dr. Kayser, I just want to thank you, one, for the work that you do. It's such a vitally important work. I thank you for challenging us, and I appreciate you joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing, but also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Kayser and learn more about his new book, The Ethics of Abortion, as well as the host of recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. 
This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, as well as stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can sign up at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week. Thank you.